kind of get started here with chapter 6 of Hebrews. And what I'd like for us to just consider as we begin, we're going to see how chapter 6 will tie in with the tail end of chapter 5. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later in the class. Um, but as we, as you remember, as we left chapter 5 last week, this writer's encouragement to these brethren with regard to their immaturity and those things that they should have been with regard to maturity but are not. And when he began to talk to them about the priesthood in chapter 5, back around verses 9, 10, he, uh, of chapter 5, uh, he recognized that uh, as he began that subject and that topic, that they weren't in a position to handle the information that he wanted to provide them because as he referred to them, they had become dull of hearing. So we get into chapter, we get into chapter six, and as we start this chapter, he kind of continues along this same line with regard to uh, their immaturity and the danger of that. And what I want us to think about this morning, and I'd like for you to, you know, not that we don't do this and we make application in our lives, but think about how this particular subject, this particular matter, how we can make application to this in our life. How can this affect us? And I think when I consider our walk on this earth, Consider those things that we should know, we should be attaining, attempting to attain, things that we are trying to work to understand, grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. It could be easily something that we could face with regard to our own lives in not maturing and still feast on the milk. You know, I, I think one of the things we can do to keep our finger on the pulse with some of that is to, as we think about either lessons that we hear, we think about Bible classes we sit in, think about just the, the various things that we look at when we read God's Word. Are those things that we are beginning to understand? Are those things that we really understand? Are those things that we don't understand? Are those things that we can't make somewhat of a, when, when we look at them and read those things, are we able to wrap our minds around those things and recognize that either we are walking, we are maturing, or we are in a situation as these brethren were, dull of hearing. Or as we read in chapter six, he'll talk about you know being sluggish uh, somewhat lazy, and we don't want to be that way. This writer now can, can encourages them to go on to perfection, have complete maturity, to be a full age. Uh, in chapter fourteen or verse fourteen, we'll read of chapter as we as we see in chapter five. So, 
In chapter 6, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to the maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from the dead works of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Let's stop right there. Just a second. See if we can pick apart a little bit verses 1 and 2 when we consider, you know, that they should not be. He's in, you know, before he was telling them that they were in a position to where they needed to be taught again. And he tells them now that, that they should not need to be taught elementary principles of the gospel again. And he is going to label and just give them a few instances of an example when he says, you know, to press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance. What would that mean when you think about laying a foundation? You know, I know we've got some in here who are, are carpenters or work in construction. Um, and, and just what, what little that I've been involved in some of that work just to see a foundation laid. Um, but he says, not laying again a foundation of repentance. And it, it made me think, and, I, and I, read a, I read a couple of things where I thought someone had a pretty good view when it come to laying a foundation again. And then think about laying a foundation again and laying it again. And somewhat being in a, in a rut or being in a status in your life where the foundation principles are all that we're grasping. Think about building a house. Sam, you just built a house. Think about the foundation that's under that house. Did it take them a month? Did it take them a few weeks? Did it take them two years? You know, think about a foundation. Should be that you're actually it's important and it's built and it's that part of that house, that part of us. Think about us as individuals. We have that foundation underneath us. But then what are we doing on top of that? Are we building on that? Are we truly seeing what's going to come to fruition in our lives? And it's you know, can we look back a year from a year ago and say, look where I'm at today? And I'm saying that where each one of us would say that in our own lives. Not where I would say, um, you know, look, look where Nate was last year. Now look where Nate is now. Now, should we know our brother? Should we care about our brother? I think we should, absolutely. But also think these are things we need to circumspect. We need to see what we do in our own lives. How, do we, how are we growing? Or are we just... Status quo. And I think he's saying to them, to, to, he's, he's encouraging these brethren, when you think about where they are, where, they've been, where, where he sees them, he comes in and starts talking to them about meat, about Melchizedek and the, pres, and the priesthood. And then all of a sudden, he just puts the brakes on and says, whoa, wait a minute. You're not able to handle this. You can't understand what I'm about to tell you. So he, what's he do? He sidetracks. This writer sidetracks from where he was going and says, I need to talk to you about your maturity, your spiritual maturity, because right now it's failing. It's something that you need to realize that's important. 
And so when he brings these things out, I think, you know, that's what he's saying. Lay that foundation, but then continue. And he says as well, let's press on to maturity. Let's press on to growth. And then he says, and he gives some examples. Repentance from dead works. What would we think about when we say that? Repentance of dead works. If you think about uh, sin and the things that go on with regard to sin, you know, some of these things, you know, repentance from sin, sinful acts, you know, putting, you know, when you think about dead, dead works, it brings forth death. He's, and, and I think when you, when you think about it in that light, it's something you should know. And it's what he's saying to them. He says to them as well, looking at, at still in, in verse, and looking at verse one, and faith toward God. How's their faith toward God? You know, when you think about that, it involves not only believing that God is, but the, you know, having the kind of faith that would please him. We see that he says to them as well, instruction about washings. Now, you, I'm reading from the New, New American Standard Version, but if you go to, the, if you look at other versions, you'll see that that could refer, and I think this referred, you know, again, I, I read several several commentators, but I still come back to Hebrews being its own commentator in this. And it would seem to me, a lot of people think that this particular statement would, re, would reflect or look back to instructions about washings under the mosaic or under the, the, uh, the, the mosaic dispensation where the law was. But I think what he's saying here is that this particular, this particular teaching and instruction is about, is about baptisms. And he says washings. He says baptisms. Now, when we think about that, what's Ephesians 4 say about baptism? There's what? There's one. So, is this a misprint that he says washings? What do you think? What's the, well, how could this be a fundamental principle? Okay, but I'm talking about the plural part of this. Well, the Hebrews knew more than one. The Israelites had washings for different things, ceremonial washings and things like that, that they, they, don't, apply, they don't apply under Christ. So they really meant nothing under Christ to get back to what you said in Ephesians. There is only one that matters. How about... And, and, I, and I, I agree with you, Sam. But I also think when he talks about, wouldn't they also be knowledgeable about John's baptism with John? John? Baptism of the Holy Spirit? I mean, these are things that they've heard, and these are things that they've, they've that they, I think at this point in time in their lives, they would see and recognize. And again, I think he looks at these as, as Fundamental principles that they should understand, that they should realize. I, I, and, again, and you may disagree with me on this, but I'm not sure that this is referring to, this particular section is referring to those things that they did from the customs, you know, the different things that were involved in the old law, uh, whereas I think he's trying to say to them, these are things you were baptized, you're aware of baptism of John. You think about what, what John's baptism, did John's baptism, was it for the remission of sins? No. Okay. 
So, I mean, they, they were aware of these things. They were aware of, of I think, what, what he's talking about here. And then he says, of laying on of hands. Who had the capabilities to lay on of hands? Apostles. Now, in that light, would they have recognized and understood that from an from a elementary principle? I think they would have. And then as the apostles died off, all of that actually died off with them. He says to them as well, he says, in the resurrection of the dead, how about that? Is that something that would be in a, should have been a fundamental principle for them? This writer says it would have been. You think about the resurrection you know, of the dead. It's, it's fundamental in, with regard to Christianity. They should know this. Eternal judgment, he says to them. You know, all men sometime, at some point in time, are going to stand before Christ. And they, they have, the, all of these people or the majority of them would have been, should have been, and should have understood that and been taught this. And when we think about, you know, a full realization of this fact should move people to obey the gospel. And then what's the tail end of thinking about that? Remain faithful because they know there's an eternal judgment. But again, he's talking to them about this. And he says in verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. When you think about that little statement there at the end of verse 3, if God permits, you know, we say, you know, and I think, you know, James brings this out, things that we do, if God wills, if it's something that, you know, when we think about tomorrow, you know, if that's going to happen, you know, if God wills. But sometimes, again, I think here, this is something that he brings out with regard to this, what we're going to do with God's help. You know, he's, he's telling these, he's giving these, these brethren a pretty stern and a pretty stiff rebuke with regard to where they are. But then we're going to see here as we move on a little bit further, you know, he makes it clear that they should move beyond these first principles. He warns them of the danger of apostasy, an abandonment of what one has professed or a departure of one's faith or religion. He warns them about this. And I think as we, as we consider looking at this, let's move on to our next slide. He says to them, you know, if you continue in this light, you can easily fall away. I'm going to look at verses 4 through, actually we'll look at verses 4 through 8. For, the, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift that have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify themselves, the Son of God, and put him to open shame. For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is, called, it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. And I want to just depict a little bit of what's going on here. Once they've been enlightened, he's telling them once you've, you know, in, for this case, who once have been enlightening and have tasted the heavenly gift. You know, I think when we think about the word or you think about being enlightened, have you ever read something or been somewhere and all of a sudden it's like you, you've got this aha moment, so to speak. Your things kind of are illuminated. Things come to light. 
furnished with a, with a clear view about something. And I think that's what he's saying with regard to being enlightened. They've tasted, they have tasted, uh, you know, of God's good word. This enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift. When you think about being, tasting this, it's kind of, I, th I think a term, you know, as I've read that through the years, and I just think about that. I'll hear, you know, a, a sermon and somebody will use, will read from that particular passage, and I think about tasting it. Was there a time where they hadn't tasted that? Was there a time where we haven't tasted that? Tasted and tasted what? What is he saying? When you're in sin, you 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 don't have the same comforts as you do as when you're a child of God. And when you become a child of God, you start realizing you have a best friend and you have you have the scriptures and you have a family. Some people never ever had a family before. So they would have tasted the glory and the goodness of the scriptures and of being associated with one another. And they should remember that without that, they don't have they don't have those blessings. Okay. Carrie, back there, David, Carrie. Phil, there seems to be a connection with this idea of heavenly gift going back to Acts, the second chapter, verse 38, that those who repented, they believed, repented, they confessed, baptized, that they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. That gift is salvation from past sin. So here we have these Hebrews in chapter 6, who have been saved. They've accepted the gospel. They've put their former life away, but now they are in danger of returning back to that former life and giving up that salvation. So this is an excellent passage to go to, as are others, to show that salvation is not um, guaranteed when we're baptized. Appreciate it. Good point. Anybody else? Any comments? Mitch? Just to say in Hebrews, we talked earlier about the rest that we enter. And you would taste of that rest. Yeah. You experience that rest. Yeah. Good point. So, and again, I think, you know, you make application to something Kerry brought out there, that that salvation was not guaranteed if they live their lives unacceptable, or again, think about going back, falling back into where they, you know, they reach a point, so to speak, of no return. Um, and, I, and I think, again, you think about apostasy. You think about actually, and, and I think he brings this out, this in, so to speak, verses four through six, seven and eight. He's bringing out the fact that, uh, you know, he uses in seven and eight, he uses an example of the ground, he uses example of, of vegetation. Here's a farmer, you know, and he hopes for rain and rain comes on that vegetation and it brings useful, it's useful for him. You know, he tills it and he receives a blessing from God. This is, you know, you think about all, all of those that, are, that have a garden and you think about the rain, you pray for rain. If you want your, your garden to produce and you want it to, to abound, 
so to speak, in the things that, you know, you've, that you, all the work that you've put into that. And I think it's the same thing. It's, it's, it's also, when you look at verse 8, you know, if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed. You know, if you've got, you think about times that you've not received water and you've not received, you know, the growth, the, the maturity that should have, you, that you were expecting, then what's he say there in verse 8? It ends up being burned. You know, same with, with our lives. You know, if we're in a situation in our life to where, you know, we think about individuals who have been enlightened, those who have accepted, those who've responded to the gospel, and they are living their lives. But then all of a sudden, something happens in, in their lives where they fall away. Is there, a, is there a capability for that person to come back? Is that what he's saying? Okay, there is. There's a capability. If, if their heart is such that they want to return. But whenever we think about this and we think about what he says here um, in verse 6, I'm going back up here just a little bit, as we think about growth and we think about what should be maturing in our lives, but then he says, since they again crucify themselves, the Son of God, and put him to open shame. If they've fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Does that mean if we fall away, that there's no opportunity to be for us to repent? Is that what he's saying here? come forward and do it the right way but if you fall away from the Lord it doesn't matter how many times you come forward you can always come back to the Lord because the Lord gives us that repentance is that what he's saying here is that what is that what you see here this particular you can't bring someone back if they don't have a desire to do it. that's right that and, and I think where I'm going with this you're right Leanne and what you just brought out with regard to repenting someone recognizes that and they need to change their life we see that they have that capability and Jesus will forgive them but when you've got someone who has has a heart of no repentance they have reached a point in their life to where again I think this is where he's saying then that person, you know, there's not going to be another someone superior to Jesus to come and die and then that particular individual, now here's another opportunity for forgiveness of sin. We are in, a, we are in the Christian dispensation. We're in the Christ, Christian age. This is what we've got right here, and there's nothing remaining. There's not anything yet, yet to come. We need to realize that at some point, what's left after this life when we die or we're still on this earth is for God to come back, Jesus to come back, God send his son, to judge this earth. So individuals that apostate go off into another religion, go off in another thought process, they're not, as, as the writer brings out here, he says to them, there no longer remains an opportunity of repentance for them. Since they again crucify to themselves They've made this choice, and, and, as, and as Sam brought, you can't make somebody. They again crucified in themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. You know, I would say probably it's a good chance that these individuals that he's writing to, some of those probably may have been, may have seen the, the crucifixion, may have witnessed that 
in, in, in Jerusalem. They may have seen that. They, they would have seen what Christ and the ridicule and the humiliation and all the things that he went through. And this writer says that to them, you know, think about what you saw Christ go through. Think about the things that he had to experience, open shame, the ridicule, and all of that. But somebody who's going to make a decision to fall away and not come back and not have a heart of wanting of repentance, that's not possible for them. Jesus is all that there is. As mighty and as powerful as he is, Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the lamb. And that lamb is what purifies and washes away our sins. Ben? I was going to build on that idea of not desiring to come back. Uh, I think much of the time that's because somebody doesn't realize they need to return to the Lord. The self-deception has grown so much that you even mentioned people of other religions and whatnot. There, there is no uh, desire to return because they don't see a need to return. And that's kind of that point of no return because uh, they never really grew in the area they needed to grow. Uh, they uh, were constantly building on a foundation with other things they shouldn't have been building on. And so they didn't know they needed to return. And, and when you get to that point of that kind of self-deception, then it becomes impossible for you to return. And, and I think he wanted to warn them that while he didn't point out where that area is or when that could become, but that it could, it could happen. And so okay. there was a major danger there they needed to, to hedge off. Appreciate it. Any other comments before we move into this next section? Just think, I mean, looking forward in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, if you go on sinning willfully, there's a similar thought that what we're talking about here. But I think about you know, what we've already studied in Hebrews, um, some, some deeper thoughts around how we're supposed to live and how the Hebrews were supposed to live in the first century. Not simple, simple topics in a lot of ways. And so I think it just thinking about this <clears throat> kind of to Ben's comment, there might be some even today that depart and don't realize it, it's, but it's on us to continue studying and continue working to make sure that we're adhering to all things this, this book, the Bible, shows us and, and tells us to do. Even minor departures. You know, there's, there's a lot who, who depart in small ways. Even minor departures, though, going to Hebrews 10, there remains a judgment, a fearful judgment. And so I think it's important for us to continue working and studying and making sure that we're, we're looking at these difficult subjects and understanding them correctly and, and only doing what the Bible tells us to do, speaking where the Bible speaks and being silent where the Bible's silent. Yes. Good point. Appreciate it. Roger. So while we're in this area... Um, I, I always think of Second Peter chapter two, uh, twenty through twenty-two, that that latter states worse than the than the first to have overcome and to know to have the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and that salvation, and then to return is comparable to a dog returning to its vomit or a a pig back to the mire. Um, we need to take extreme caution. 
Appreciate it. Anything else? Cameron, do you have your... Okay. Um, I was just going to say, I, I think we see, again, there, the, with the pressure around them, I think the, we see them sinking back into Judaism. I think going off what Carrie was saying, that's what they are ingrained in. That's, just, that's what they're coming through. And they're, when, when the pressure is coming around and they're going through trials, you see them, I think, reverting back to, and that's what I think the first few verses are talking about, really feeling comfortable but not pushing through those things and realizing that the salvation is not through those things, but it's only through Jesus. And they're saying, push past, I think that's Paul really pushing them, encouraging them, because you see later on in chapter six, he's saying, your works are not in vain, um, and your love for the Lord has not been overlooked, but push past the traditions that they've been rooted in Judaism and focus on Jesus, because that's where the blessings, that's where the true salvation, and that's where they're going to be changed when they start looking to him instead of what they've been ingrained with in the past. Yes. Thank you. Appreciate that. Anything else? So as we continue and we look at uh, this next section, you know, I think, and how labeled this was, encouragement based on the, con the confidence that he has in these Hebrew brethren. And what's he, he's gonna, is he, what he's going to share with them here in, uh, in this next section is he's going to talk to them about, verse 9, but beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you, concerning you, and the things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. For God is not unjust as to forget your works and the love with which you have shown toward his name and having ministered in and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence so that you realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply you. I'm going to stop right there just at, uh, at verse 14. As I go back here, I think one of the things that we see that this writer brings out about them, you know, is that he says to them, you know, this is encouragement he's given them based on, you know, persuaded of things in, in, that, that are in the Hebrews. You've worked and you've labored. You show the same diligence until the end. Imitators of those who inherit the promises. You know, he's, he's, uh, he's gone from a, a little, from a, from a standpoint of rebuke, reproving, encouraging, and now he's trying to, I think he's going to a state here of, of building them up and, and letting them know, you know, that, and it, that's, and, and I don't think, you know, I think that we all sometimes, it's, it's how we might take that, how the attitude we might have when someone tries to help us, you know, and I think that's, that's what he sees and what he's doing here with them. You know, he transitions from this stern warning of apostasy to a compassionate exhortation, I think, that for spiritual maturity for them. And uh, he sees their good works. God so desires to show them, you know, the heirs, the heirs of promise, the heirs of his promise. And we're going to go just a little bit 
little bit further here, and we're going to recognize um, as he continues to reassure them of God's absolute promises, he reminds them that God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. And when we read that in verse 14, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. When God made his promise to Abraham, let's, let's think about this and I'm going to move to my next slide. We think about as well, looking at this is, and this is the only verb, this is the only quotation from Genesis, the only quotation from the old law, from the, from the Old Testament that we, that we see here in chapter six. Um, and I actually think I may just, I'll show you. I've tried to bring those out just because I think these are things and verses and quotations that he continues to bring so that it's a, they're aware of it. They have knowledge of of this, Genesis 22, verse 17, where God made that promise to Abraham. And that promise, when we think about that in, in verse 15, so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise, Abraham. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation and end to every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable and the immutable changeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. What's he saying here? Think about these verses. In verse 14, he blessed Abraham, says, and you will surely I will surely multiply you. God said that to Abraham. Now we think about the next verse. He, Abraham patiently waited to obtain that promise. Verse 16, what do men do on this earth? What's he saying there? What's he saying there in, uh, in verse 17? We like what do you think? I'm sorry? Men like assurance. Okay. And so how does that happen? I promise you I will do this thing. Okay. So we see when men swear by one greater than themselves, and then it says with them an oath given as confirmation, so to speak, an end to every dispute. That's so to speak in a way you could just say that settles it. But then we see here in this next section, we see where God made an oath. What is it that he, this writer is wanting these Hebrew Christians to understand about what he's saying right here. What's God's oath? What's God? Who is God when it comes to his word and what he says? Guaranteed. Yeah, but even like God promised Abraham, even at the beginning, the very beginning of Genesis, God had a plan to save, save the world. He wanted his son to come and be the sacrifice for sin. So they need to realize just like Abraham was promised, his generations would be like the stars of the sky. Uh, uh, God promised even back in Genesis that Jesus would be the sacrifice for the sins for, um, for the world. Okay. What is it? When we think about these two examples, that he's, that he's comparing men and men's oaths, men swearing to something greater, 
What's he saying in verse 17 when we think about, and and let's let's move on in. As you think about that, verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God, number one, to what? Lie. Who, and that's we who have taken refuge, would have a strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. So when we think about this, I think one of the things I think he brings out to these brethren is the fact that, you know, God, he confirmed to Abraham, he confirmed, number one, God's unchanging. God doesn't lie. And he confirmed by two immutable things, by an oath and by his promise. Those promises are immutable because he can't lie. He swore by himself. Who else is higher? You know, man may say, you know, if you've been in court before and you have to see someone put their hand on a Bible, what a lot of times do, what are they swearing? What are they swearing to? To tell the truth, so help me. Yeah. What Bible did God put his hand on? You know, you think about that. I mean, is, is that not impactful when you think about God? That when God says it, you know, again, you've all heard of this, you know, bumper sticker. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. No, God said it, that settles it. So when he said, and you think about who he is, you think about what he, there's none higher than God whom to confirm an oath. No one's higher than him. So this oath should be impactful from what he's trying to tell. There, therefore, you know, it should be a great encouragement for them to hold, to lay hold of the expectations of heaven that are set before them. We're running out of time. And I think if, when we, when we think about We think about this last, this last section. He goes from the encouragement that they are as Hebrews and the things that he wants to bring out to them. But I think now he does that based on the promises of God. And we look at, you know, the, the latter part of this where he's going to say in verse 19, this hope we have is anchor of the soul, a hope that's sure and steadfast, one that... In, that uh, enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. When we think about this and we consider what he's saying here to to these brother as we close, where does it say this hope that we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one that enters the veil? What happens when he does? Who's entering the veil? God. Jesus. Where, more importantly, does he go with that particular statement? We're going to go back into the order of Melchizedek in the priesthood. It says Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. I don't know, and I looked this up, I don't know of another word that I found that's throughout the Bible, that refers to a forerunner. You think about a forerunner, what does that, what, 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 what comes into your mind when you think about something or somebody being a forerunner? Okay. Okay, John the Baptist. When I think about a forerunner, I think about a scout. I think about, you know, I'm, I'm a big Western guy. 
But I think about, you know, sending a scout out, sending somebody in front of you, ahead of you. And that's what Jesus, Jesus is doing for us, having become a high priest after the order forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. People are starting to come in right now. But I think what's interesting, when you go back to chapter 5, the tail end of chapter 5, and, and the rebuke and the reproving that he gives these brethren, then there's this, so to speak, kind of an interlude here where he comes in to encourage them, warn them. It's an exhortation to warn them. And then if you look at how he goes through that process and, and seeing, telling them, don't fall back. And he's telling them, you know, think about all the things you've built up. And, and, and he builds them up. Then he says to them here at the end of this, it's based on the promises of God and the things that he shares with them, promised to Abraham, assured by these two immutable things, and the hope of the soul, anchor of the soul. But I think the incredible thing is, what's he do? He then reverts right back in to chapter 7, talking about the priesthood and the order of Melchizedek. Thank you for your comments. I appreciate your time this morning.